Geez, I think this has been a whole month now that we've been recording this, hey? Not this particular episode, but <laughs> just recording in general, right? <laughs> it took four weeks just to do one episode. Yep. And we've been here camping we out. Although it wouldn't be a bad thing during COVID, because what else are you going to do? <laughs> right. No, but we've been at this for, yeah. Yeah, we're a month now. pretty soon we'll, we'll be like professionals or something. <laughs> so what have you guys been up to? Not too much, because what, didn't those new restrictions, well, I don't know, all the days blend together. I know. Those new restrictions come in. Was that last week? Was that last that Friday? Was last, was and it? today's Wednesday? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, I'm like, so, you know, before I was at least going out a little bit to socialize safely, of course, but now it's <laughs> basically only going out for groceries and essentials and yeah. Well, yeah. for us, it's not much different because we live out in the uh, in the boonies out in the country anyway. So we still just go out for groceries and, you know, big things. And other than that, it's like I go outside walking the dog or the cats out in the woods. I throw this one off my lap on a regular basis. Oh, man. And actually, it's warmed up again the last couple of days because it was kind of chilly there for a bit. So it's at least nice to go outside for a walk now again. Yeah. Shall we talk about the news? Then you're up. Welcome to the green scene. From Science Daily. They, I don't know if you guys have heard about this. this is, I find this very cool, especially the time of year that we're dealing with. So researchers at ETH Zurich have identified a self-regulatory mechanism in European deciduous trees, which I would think would mean it would be similar to here as long as you're... Um, latitude longitude matches matches up right um but it limits mechanism limits growing season length so the leaf senescence where they they drop the leaves and start getting ready to go to sleep for the winter so with the climate change and generally speaking longer summer seasons it was originally thought that these trees would have a longer growth season as well because before senescing because obviously there's more warm and more light for a good period of time right what they're finding out is that the increased photosynthesis in the spring and summer actually leads to earlier senescence it means now there's there's three main factors photosynthesis day length and the temperature coming up to autumn to winter that determine when these trees will start senescing drop their leaves and then go to sleep for the winter so rather than what scientists were originally thinking that as global temperatures increase, temperate forests will actually also increase their growing times. It's actually having the opposite effect, which I thought was really bizarre. So they actually become more limited in their capacity to absorb CO2, uh, which then means they're less efficient carbon sinks. So isn't it interesting that there's this kind of happy balance where trees will maximize their photosynthesizing, they'll um, absorb a whole bunch of carbon, yada 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 
but now because of these slightly increasing temperatures as time goes on, instead of having that be a longer window for them to operate in, it actually caused them to go to sleep and senesce sooner, which means now they've got a reduced capacity to absorb the CO2 and are actually poorer uh, or less efficient carbon sinks over time. So what do you guys think about that? <clears throat> cool. Like, yeah. Um... No, it's not cool. It's actually No, I mean, like, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's not... <laughs> It's not a positive thing to think about, but it's an interest. I mean, just the idea of the research that went into it. Like, I think that's the interesting, cool part is how they kind of found out, figured it out. But yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of a grim look at it. That what would you guys have thought? Initially? I th I thought that too. That if if they just it had more uh, warm a, a longer warmer season they would just use it to grow more and here it's turning out that it's causing them to go to sleep sooner i didn't think that i don't know about you guys no i would have been thinking too that oh yeah it's warmer it's, it, if it means it's not going to be as cold it's not going to tell the trees to start you know hibernating go to sleep and senescing uh but now the fact that what you just said <laughs> was that the opposite is actually going to happen like yeah that's yeah i have you guys realized that um, some trees here in Edmonton, they don't even turn yellow anymore. They just turn kind of brown and the leaves are still left on the tree before it started, after it started snowing. Yeah, that's the other thing is if, if they don't have that gradual adjustment, or at least I'm, I'm not, I don't have the science experimentation behind me, but I'm just based on what I'm observing, it looks like if they don't have that gradual time to gradually go into the sleeping, the senescing phase, then like Kevin's saying, uh, they just basically go from, I'm growing green to, oh my God, I just froze and everything drops and goes brown, but they didn't really get that adjustment period either. <clears throat> yeah, because I took a walk uh, to that large pond. Yeah. Dan knows that large pond, yeah. So those willow trees over there, the leaves are still on there. Yeah, yeah we've got some uh, aspen and poplar here that still have their leaves on as well. They're turning into evergreens. Evergreen, but green and brown. <laughs> brown, brown, evergreen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this also shows that I, I, I realize I think it's still important for sure. All this talk about we got to plant billions of trees and increase the carbon sink and, and all this that. Um, I think it's important, but I think maybe people are too focused on just that one thing, and this is showing. We need to look at other areas for the carbon sequestration as well, because over time, if the temperatures keep going up, the trees are actually going to be poorer at uh, and less efficient at doing this. Yeah, and that and that's the thing is that yeah, it's not just I mean, trees is the big one that I think everybody thinks of when you kind of start getting into talking about climate change and carbon sequestration and all those kind of things and what we can do to improve uh, all those aspects but there's so many other mm -hmm. ecosystems plants all these other uh aspects that i think tend to be overlooked and yeah i think if you can kind of look more and do more research into how all these ones kind of interact and i'm sure there's a bunch of research that i mean you know, over my academic career, I've kind of looked into some of them, but kind of for the general public to kind of be more aware of it, I guess, because, you know, you kind of think like one big one that I think gets overlooked is prairies, like grasslands, I think. 
because like that is a huge mm-hmm. carbon sink but you know i think the general public usually doesn't think of grass as being like a um a big carbon sink or like being able to sequester a lot of carbon and i mean think about it most people in alberta if you've got a choice between hey here's some wonderful prairie or here's these great temperate woods, you know, boreal forest, whatever. What do people almost always pick? They love the trees. Everybody wants trees on their property, but does it, does, do people want to sit there and go, I'm just going to have an open grassland. No, they don't. Right? And yet that's part of the reason why that and, and farmland taking up so much of space is why our grasslands are so at risk versus people are actually working quite hard at, uh, Revegetating forests mm-hmm. and everything everywhere. Right? I don't know, if, Kevin, if you've got anything to add to that. Mm, no, I think it's good. <laughs> no, we covered everything. I'm satisfied with um, everything we've talked right. so far. Next topic. Oh, wow. Okay. He's going to have a whole bunch to say about this next one then. Yeah. Um, this one actually, ironically, also comes from Science Daily. Um, and this is all very recent. So, this, this um, article about the uh, the uh, senescing versus the photosynthesizing and everything in the trees. That's actually from November 30th, so right until November. And this other one's from November 20th. So this is all very current stuff. So this other one, uh, it's, this one's actually a little bit happier for me. So it makes me feel better because so much depressing stuff in the world right now, right? Um, so this one comes from the Washington University in St. Louis. This is the other thing you'll find is uh, we're trying Part of the, I think part of the reason why we're also trying to do this podcast is because there's very little Canadian or Alberta content at this point regarding these kind of topics. And a lot of the information comes from the States or other places around the world. So you'll find that we draw information from some of those other places, but we try to put our local spin on it for sure and uh, make it our own and add our own um, experiences to it. So, But uh, yeah, Washington University in St. Louis So they did a study in the Northern Rockies, which we happen to have in Alberta, which examined the relationship of wildfire with plants and pollinators. And a lot of the time people just assume wildfire, bad, 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 bad. We don't want wildfires because it burns our trees down, all of our grass goes, poor little critters get pushed out of their homes or roasted or whatever. And it's just not good. But under normal circumstances, regular wildfires actually do a lot of good. They create a lot of clearing for new plant growth. They stimulate a lot of the seeds to germinate. They uh, provide new nutrient levels in the soils for, for the plants to utilize. But in this case, they actually found that plant pollinator relationships are even more important than fire disturbed areas. So that's places where obviously fires run through and and burnt pretty much everything. In these areas, the numbers of pollinators and their plants are actually much higher than in other areas. So in a what they call a mixed severity area where not all the plant material has been decimated by fire, it's up to 10 times higher and in an area where it's high severity, so completely decimated and everything's been burnt off, it's up to nine times higher than other areas. So that, um, again, I'm not sure you can take what you want out of that, but to me that seems to point towards that after fire comes through an area, um, it's actually going to stimulate more plant growth and more pollinators initially as pioneering type species than in other established areas which now have other things going on as well and as long as it's a balanced mixed 
kind of percentage, I think that's a really good thing. What are your thoughts, guys? Interesting. No, that's that's crazy to think that, what, 10 times higher in a mid-severity? Is that what you said? Yeah, ten, up to 10 times higher. And it's, and it's the combined relationship, so it's pollinators and the plant, not just one or the other, right? So they're obviously related. Both of them. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, like I knew that there were like the there are benefits for having um having like a fire go through a certain area because I mean that helps with plant regeneration growth and sometimes you do need that burn to also just like kind of kill stuff back a little bit so that yeah new stuff can grow. Uh, but yeah, to think that yeah it's almost <laughs> at that ten times level for a mid severity kind of like burn in an area that helps pollinators and plants like that's that's crazy well then it makes me think of these other things like so after an area is burned i guess do they arrive together which comes first the plants the pollinators and how do they how do they know to start to gather in these areas in these higher densities or something you know like i guess there's a whole lot of research somebody could do in this one Mm -hmm. area alone i think that uh, well, from school, we've always heard that wildfire is good. And um, it's not till I uh, actually went to the mountains and then you would see those controlled wild, wildfire. Mm-hmm. They would fence those areas off and they would control and burn that area. Then if you actually walk into it, you could see that it actually generates new growth because you can see that those um, uh, seedlings of uh, pine or spruce it's actually growing mm-hmm. well maybe this is part of the i, I realized uh, some of these areas like uh it's, it was only a few years ago uh, up north got burned really badly of course bc that kind of thing but at the same time um things like those pine beetles burning seems to be about one of the only things that'll that'll stop them right yeah nobody likes the pesky mountain pine beetle Except, I guess we, we've got to find out what eats them. What likes to eat those things? <laughs> Get a whole bunch Chinese. Just for the record, it was the guy from Shanghai who said that, not on the there's a joke. There's oh. actually a joke that if uh, you have some invasive species, just uh, tell Chinese to come here and eat them, and they can eat the invasive species and make them become endangered species. Anyway, carry on to the next news. It was actually the Science Daily guys again. They're they're quite popular doing this kind of stuff. But I actually found this really cool thing. It was just actually just this morning, and um, it was it was from December tenth. But so it's it's still pretty up to date, and uh, Virginia Tech researchers have found methane to be much higher in the bottom of uh, reservoirs and lakes where there's uh, when there's no oxygen versus carbon dioxide stay the same regardless, and the reason for or reasons I guess for the um, methane levels increasing. And there being no oxygen in the first place uh, are related to these things that we were, we were actually touching on this last episode. Things like uh, fertilizers and other runoffs going into the water bodies, all these kind of things. Uh, and then because of that and the methane levels rising, really speeding up our uh, global warming process. But um, 
So it's yet another thing that adds to this climate change thing. But lucky for us, doing things like the stormwater, stormwater management, erosion control, planting of filtration type plants, and as well as educating people so that they're not spewing this stuff onto the land, which runs into the water in the first place, we can help reverse that process. There's also, it's actually pretty cool. I don't know if any of you guys know Chikaku. It's a park area north, a little bit west of us, but there's a, a nice little lake in there, but it gets really bad algae in the summer. That's a prime candidate for this methane buildup. But what they're doing is they're trying to increase the oxygen levels by actually forcing air into the water, kind of just, you know, like an air bubbler like you do with a fish tank, but on a much bigger scale. So I think they've got about five of those bubblers in the lake because they also stock the lake with trout. And so they're trying to give enough oxygen for the fish so they survive this fishing season. Anyway, so they're actually blowing this air through the water. And it's helping some, but I think, number one, blowing the air through the water can also churn up uh, sediment and stuff in the water in the first place. And then number two, it's not enough. So again, going back to our regenerative landscape with the plants and everything, that could be a big bonus to help get these water bodies back to the way they should be working because people don't realize just because it looks clean and pristine on top they don't know what's going on underneath because all this lack of oxygen and the higher methane is coming from the bottom areas oh that's cool um yeah it's kind of nice how it ties in with uh yeah all the stuff that we're talking about and with uh yeah like wetlands too yeah if you kind of if you can establish a healthy shoreline part of it but just all the biodiversity with plants and microorganisms and all these things that help to make lakes and ponds and whatever cleaner or more efficient, I guess. Because yeah, like I mean, most people, they love that nice pristine look for a lake. But like you said, you can make it all look trimmed and manicured and perfect on the front or on the top. But yeah, look at the bottom and it's a whole different story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so to kind of look at that area, like as a whole, and being able to do these things that, I mean, in my opinion, I think are pretty small and not really, not super costly, like when it comes to planting a whole bunch of plants in versus having to do, you know, a complete cleanup of when there's like an algae bloom or something. Like, I think there, there's a lot of benefits to <laughs> kind of thinking about these things as a whole and how you can use principles of regenerative landscapes uh, within it to make them better. Yeah, and it just proves, again, this whole regenerative landscape process that it's multiple factors all combined that give you the big payout at the end and, and make the whole entire ecosystem area, the world, like, you know, whatever scale you're looking at. But it makes it better versus if you just do one piece, that's only one part of the puzzle, and then you're missing a whole, a whole bunch of other pieces, right? Yeah, I just thought that was really cool. I was like, oh, man, it just ties in exactly to what Dan was talking about last week on the Wetland Podcast, so pretty cool i actually what i was thinking of is because it's right close to christmas and of course up here where we live it's all covered in snow so everything's pretty white uh it does make it look nice when it's pristine white like that but it also gets to be a little monotonous after a while because it's just white white and more white and you don't see much of anything else so i was thinking for christmas wouldn't it be great if we did uh a winter accessorizing episode where we went over some things that you can do to your planters, your garden, your yard, your whatever landscape area you have 
to just spruce it up and, and make it a little more interesting and exciting for not only the Christmas season, but for the entire winter season. First of all, people don't realize, even though a lot of these plants that we talk about are native plants, and yes, they're made for our climate and the areas that they grow in, because of different factors, they can vary year to year just on a, an irregular time frame, but also because of climate change and these other things going on. Some of our plants ha do struggle from time to time if there's these great fluctuations. Um, some of the desert dryland type plants down farther south by Calgary and beyond, they're totally equipped to deal with these Chinook changes and the, the landscape drying right out and being baked and then the snow getting thrown on and it going to minus 40. But there's other areas that aren't. And so um, if you have certain types of plants in your yard or garden, definitely you'll want to help them out by basically consider it like you're putting a scarf or a blanket on them to help them out through the extra bad periods of your winter. So by putting snow on, that provides moisture and insulation value, protects against the wind. Uh, by using mulch or, or other fabrics, that can do the same thing and also give a more consistent uh, temperature instead of it fluxing up and down so drastically as it likes to do in Alberta. Um, and it just boosts your plants so that they're not so stressed come spring and they have a much better start. So that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do, a lot of people like to, I guess they're, they're pruning and they're clean up in the fall, right? Because they think it makes their yards look messy. So they'll get, they'll rake all the leaves. They'll cut all the tops off their grasses or their flowers. They might do their pruning for their trees and shrubs. It may make things look tidier. Well, it leaves stuff pretty open. So again, the wind can come whipping through more winter kill, we call it. So the tops can die off, that kind of thing. And it also reduces the area that can collect snow because a lot of the grasses and the, the shrubs, when they're thicker, they actually act as a, a, a windbreak, snowbreak. So they actually hold the moisture in, which we usually desperately need in the spring. So what you might want to do instead of all your trimming and everything in the fall is just do it selectively. So for some of your leaves, for example, you don't have to necessarily rake up all your leaves. Just take off some of them and leave um, areas where there's a natural mulch of leaves because it also houses our little insect friends that are actually beneficial in the spring, like the ladybugs, some of our um, arachnoid uh, wasps and that kind of thing, where they will be able to get a head start on the pests in the spring versus if it's totally stripped, there's nowhere for them to go, nowhere them, for them to overwinter. It also, again, gives a little bit extra insulation and protection for your, I guess, your parent plant or the main part of the plant come spring. And then in the spring, when you see the green coming out, sure, then you can clear out all the dead growth and that kind of stuff. But these would be plants like your, something like red o's your dogwood. It's a native, it's tough, that's great. If you prune it all right in the fall, then there's nothing there to protect it for the rest of the winter. And that's where you'll see lots of the, I don't know if you guys have seen, even out in the woods, this happens naturally, where the first, I don't know, six inches of the top of the twigs are just all brown and dead. Have you guys seen that? Anyone? Anyone? Oh yeah. Like, I mean, I, I have a few dogwoods in 
my own yard and yeah like i mean i mean my parents or my mom would cut them back in the fall and then yeah i've been kind of trying to tell her otherwise like oh like i mean that's probably why you're getting all this like dead stuff come you know a few months later that and then come springtime that like oh well now this <laughs> dogwood bush like all the tips on this one side are all mm-hmm. kind of looking crummy well and what's funny is if you watch like how mother mother nature manages it so um especially in a year like this this year where it's been fairly mild up until recently all the deer the moose the the animals that like to browse on the the dogwood they hadn't even started on them until maybe just a few weeks ago out around our place because there was other things to browse on and the and the ground was still fairly open but now that they're starting to browse we're already coming up to the end of december just about like we're past the middle of december now and so for them to start browsing on these plants now, they're a lot better off than had they started doing it earlier in the season. Because now they've already caught the snow. They've already dealt with the freezing temperatures. They're they're definitely winterized and settled in. So that's all I'm saying is it doesn't mean don't prune your trees and shrubs and don't do all of your cleanup. Just make sure you're thinking about when is the appropriate time to do it. Because so many people want to just do everything in the fall and really... Um, you could space it out and do just a bit in the fall, uh, wait till everything's frozen in and snowed in. And then sure, your your orchard type trees that require pruning, you want to do that kind of midwinter before the buds really start swelling and forming for early spring. And then come spring when all your forbs and your grasses and everything start growing, then go ahead, clean out all that that dead growth what's left um it also protects them a bit from the grazing from the animals like you if you got well even in town you got tons of rabbits and stuff right uh all those jackrabbits come in and they just seem to have parties and they'll eat everything that's above the snow line they'll even ring the bark on on the saplings of the trees or whatever so if you leave extra branches extra uh dead growth they have that's more work they've got to get through to get to the good you know, nice green parts in the center. So it gives a little bit of protection from them and still allows them to, to be able to eat. So um, it also provides some habitat for these critters. So you got your some of your birds, your smaller animals, they're looking for places to hole up when it gets cold so that they don't freeze to death. Um, again, leaving some clumpy gra- dead grasses and some scrubby looking bushes okay, so maybe it doesn't look so good to you, but it's going to look really good to those little critters over the winter. And then come spring, you'll be rewarded by having all kinds of wildlife um, hanging out in your in your yards and your regenerative landscapes. So these are things you can do with what you've already got going on. But then there's also things you can do to just kind of give it a little bit of extra pizzazz. You know, think about like, it's like putting jewelry on your yard. Just make it look a little nicer. So a lot of people are using uh, natural trees for their Christmas trees, right? And of course, that's a whole other debate because there's people that say, oh, well, don't cut the trees down and use the artificial ones instead. And there's other people saying, well, the artificial ones are made out of plastic, so that's worse. And I'm not here to debate that. But for those of you who are using natural trees, after they've done their time as your Christmas tree and you want to get them out of your house before all the needles fall off and everything else. Yes, there's those uh, chipping mulching programs where you can put your tree out on the curb and they pick them up and use them at the zoos or whatever. But if you either 
don't have that kind of uh, opportunity available, or maybe you want to put the tree to another use at your fireplace, for example, before you do that, consider planting it out in a snowbank in your yard and maybe decorating it with some suet and, and treats for the wildlife. And so it can kind of have a, a second life outside. And then once it starts to dry out enough that it makes good firewood or that you do want to finally get rid of it, then you can, right? That's one thing you can do with what you've got left over after Christmas. Um, now, I know we're already into winter, so for some people it might be too late this season. But think about this for next season. You can take your planters and the areas of your garden that maybe had annuals or something in it over the summer or your vegetables. And as long as you've got a bit of snow to, to, enough to stick something into, you can take... Uh, greenery, so uh, trimmings off of your evergreens. You can take um, something like the paper birch, makes really nice, pretty uh, stick ornamentation that you can put in your pots or into some part of your garden or whatever for some different texture and a different look to it. Um, you can use some of your berry bush trimmings because a lot of them will still hang on to their berries into the winter. And those look really nice against the snow, nice bright red berries. Um, you can plop them in to just do a decorative planter or something. And you can also use either if it's cut into bunches, you can use some of your dry grasses. Or if you've planted clumps of grasses or sedges or whatever you may have, a lot of them have very interesting looking seed heads, um, the, the grass blades may have a different color from winter to summer. And anyway, all those different things can add to the look uh, of your planters or your garden areas as well. So you basically just, just get creative and you can do all kinds of things that still look great over the winter. So do you guys still notice that they use a lot of salt on the street sidewalks in town? Because again, we're out in the country, so I don't see it as much out here, but I'm thinking every time we go into town, it seems like all the roads are kind of brown with that road salt and stuff still. I think Calgary's got a program where they've been trying to use uh, beet juice, and, and that's coming from the sugar beets because sugar also reduces the, uh, or, or, yeah, reduces the temperature that um, the water freezes at as well. And so it's not like you're getting red beet juice roads everywhere. It's This is the sugar beet, but apparently it's been working quite well, and it's a uh, a more ecologically sound method, I guess. So who knows, maybe Edmonton will try it too. Anyway, um, so yeah, about the salt. What we've been doing out um, at our place, because we're on an acreage outside the city for quite a while now, is we either, if it's really bad, we'll use a bit of sand. And yes, I get it, uh, tracking sand into your house is no fun. But in my opinion, it's better than tracking salt into your house. But the other thing is uh, we also take the spent um, nutshells. So if you eat pistachios or peanuts or any of those kind of nuts, the shells, if you throw some down your steps or your sidewalk or whatever, um, they're biodegradable. So they'll just break down into the, whether it's your lawn or if you want to shovel sweep them up in the spring and put them into your garden, that's fine. But they give a lot more grip and um, are a lot less harm harmful to wildlife or your own pets because uh, I don't know about you guys, but if I've taken my dog out walking on the streets 
and they're really salty, I've got to make sure I wash her feet off afterwards or her pads start to burn and she's licking at them and it's kind of, they get kind of red and raw. But if she's out on the sand or these shells, it's no big deal, right? Worst thing we've had happen is we've got one of our cats that likes to pick up pistachio shells and she trots around the house with them, but I'll live with that. So yeah, those are a few things that you can do um, that people might not be thinking of. And one more thing, I got to say, this is an idea I kind of stole. I saw it online, but it's really cool. Have you ever heard of ice luminaries? Luminaries? Sorry. Ice luminaries. I have not. No. Why is it? Well, Again, this is one of the things that we've got a bonus because we live up in the north where it's colder. So what you can do is take a balloon or some container that will hold water, or you can dunk a balloon inside, like into water and repeatedly draw it out like you would with making a candle. And you just keep getting films of water on it. Um, but have it be cold enough that it's freezing fairly quickly. And so then you end up getting this awesome ice shape, like whether it's a globe or a box or uh, whatever. And especially if you put just a little bit of vegetable dye or something in it, they have a really cool look just on their own in the daytime. But if you put an LED light or something inside of them at night and put them out in your landscape, it looks really cool. Hmm. So it's just, it kind of makes just looks like a, a big colored glass light and it helps light up your, hey, your new landscapes that you've just decorated, right? So, yeah. So, yeah. So these are some cool things you can do in the winter. Um, also, for I realize it's something to think about now because you're not going to be planting right now because the ground's all frozen. But if you want to do some things to improve the look of your landscape for next season, come spring, think about putting in some of these plants, which, again, plug for you guys, Dan and Kevin could totally help you do some landscaping and get these plants in your yard, and I could help uh, by providing some of the plants. But try some things, like if you've got a larger space, Maybe some of the trees, like paper birch, has really awesome texture and, and a nice look to it, like I mentioned before. Um, Douglas fir, it's usually found a bit west and south of us along the edge of the mountains, but it is an Alberta native. And so if you do have an area that would suit, they're the largest tree in Canada. So make sure you've got a very large space. It might be good for more of an acreage or something, but they're gorgeous trees. Maybe try our native white spruce we've got a couple varieties of junipers that are great and even some of our non-carniferous trees can have a really good texture and aesthetic to them in the winter like wolf willow because you guys know the 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 silver leaves they might be gone now they last quite a while but they they'll probably be gone now but those little white berries those silver berries they last well into the winter and just give a really nice uh, look to the plants. Mountain ash or western mountain ash is another one. It has those clusters of the orange red berries, which could also be trimmed and put into one of your planters for some decorative woohoo. And then we've also got some uh, some smaller, like our shrubs. So we've got, like I mentioned, the red osier dogwood, uh, high bush cranberry is another one, 
and it's also an edible, so the berries you can use to make our own version of a cranberry sauce for, for Christmas and whatnot. But the leaves go a gorgeous red color in the fall and early winter, and then the berries stay basically until the critters eat them. They stay on the plants for quite a long time. And then our, our little forbs, we've got a few that are almost evergreens. Uh, our bunchberry, it will stay green for quite a long time. And then when it does change, it turns into a nice kind of crimson maroon color with the leaves. And the leaves never really disappear until the following season's new growth. And they've also got uh, for year round added value in the spring, they've got their little white flowers, but then they've also got those bright red berries that last well into the fall and into part of the winter. So uh, bearberry is another one. It's got very leathery leaves, so the leaves will last quite a while, almost till the following spring, and it's got those bright red berries as well. So we've actually got a lot to offer in our otherwise dreary, sometimes looking white landscape, right? Like Everybody goes, oh, black and white, so boring, or beige. We don't want shades of beige. We don't have one fifty shades of gray. Well, you don't have to because there's all these reds and greens and oranges and silvers, and uh, we've got a lot of color that you can put in and a lot of texture. That's the trick, too, is when you're doing this decorating for the, the uh, winter is make sure you're utilizing texture. We've got some plants like yarrow. Uh, our common yarrow has got those cool feathery leaves and it's got the little cluster of white flowers at the top. Maybe they don't look as pristine come this time of year, but you can still see where the little stalk and the cluster of flowers is at the top through the winter. And the feathers, although if you touch them, maybe they might disintegrate, they are still there. And if they get frost on them, they look really cool. So there's a lot of things you can do with your texture. And again, utilize those grasses and sedges, and you can get some really cool things happening with that. So yeah, just use your imagination and use the plants that uh, are, are naturally occurring and made for this crazy landscape that we've got out here called Alberta. You can do wonders with that. No, that was good. Like, I mean, this was kind of a... I was very interested what to hear, and that's... And also why I didn't really talk as much, because, I mean, I know a relative, you know, a good amount about plants uh, and some of their uses. But, like, in the context of um, winter accessorizing your uh, yards over the winter, like, that's, yeah, that's definitely a blind spot for me. And it's, I was just very fascinated by all the stuff that you mentioned of, like, how you can incorporate all these things when normally, you know, as soon as snow hits, you're kind of like, eh, don't, like, just don't touch anything outside, essentially. Don't look anymore. <laughs> or you kind of throw all the, or you kind of put out more, I don't want to say artificial, but, like, man-made things out to decorate, but you could decorate with native plants and stuff that you have already in your yard. So, yeah, no, that was very, very interesting. I'm also just curious. So, Kevin, um, I'm just curious. So, with you growing up in Shanghai, and I realize Christmas is not your big celebration over there, but how about just winter in general? What are your winters normally like over there? And do people do any kind of, I guess, outdoor decorating or anything different through the winter than they would through the summer with their plants or anything? Okay, so 
um, where I came from, the climate it's obviously different. Um, it's considered subtropical climate. So they have those evergreen species that can survive throughout the year. And they also have those uh, deciduous species that changes color during the fall and then lose its leaf during wintertime. So they have the kind of maple. People go there during autumn times to take picture because it's not very common. And they think that uh, trees turning yellow and losing leaf, it's amazing that's why they always go there to take pictures and then but most of the time even during winter times like uh january january and february it's still warmer than here (laughs) around around zero degrees so and all the trees are still kind of brownish because they're evergreen they just don't flower yeah but i i don't think they do anything about that they um they just leave it because well obviously it's not going to flower during winter times and I think because they usually live in apartment buildings so more they do is that they buy those um decorative plants and just do stuff indoor so they can still enjoy the daffodils during winter times when they flower and then well there's really not snow where I came from well do they, they have hand- yeah, sorry. Go oh, ahead. I was going to say, um, when you said no snow, do they have to do any winter uh, maintenance or prep then? Like, do they ever have to do extra watering or anything over the winter to get them through the next season? Or are your winters fairly, uh, I guess, moist or something too, right? Yeah, it's like Vancouver, warmer than Vancouver. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do anything about that. They get lots of rain during winter times wow. so and as soon as uh, march or april comes then there'll be blossoms of uh, cherry and those mm-hmm. stuff oh, okay yeah that puts it in perspective yeah. if you're thinking of more of a, a bc climate like that because i know yeah. in, Vic- in victoria yeah. but they're about a month ahead of us in their growth cycles but then they're also way more mild as well like like you say the plants still go to sleep and everything but it's it's not as hardcore as here and then earlier on so by my by march they're having active growth whereas we're still under snow (laughs) but no that's cool to have a different perspective because it's it's different in all kinds of places around the world so but uh but yeah like i've i've said for a long time if you can garden in alberta you can garden anywhere because it's tough but it, it does also boggle my mind that it just shows how resilient and amazing our native plants are too because of that same reason they've they've uh, learned to survive in a lot of different cha- a lot throughout a lot of different changes throughout the seasons and also in the diff- even the different pocket areas of Alberta so very cool but yeah uh, so if you guys want to get out there and do a little sprucing up with your yard whether it's for the next season or using what you've got for now because everybody's stuck at home with COVID anyway, get out there and use your your creative brain and just uh, give it a shot. And who knows, maybe uh, when people are subscribing and listening to us, maybe we can have some of our listeners send some pictures of what they've done and we can post them on our websites. That'd be cool. That'd be a good idea. So, all right. Um... I guess that's kind of a wrap for that episode. 